have, have any of you ever been to Ireland? Anyone? Oh, a handful, just a couple of people, great. Well, meet Angie Yen, okay? She lives in Brisbane, Queensland. And like most of us here, there's only a few of you that went to Ireland, like most of you, she has never been to Ireland. Now, you might think that's a rather mundane or insignificant fact, as if many of us have never been to Ireland. So what in the world does this have to do with Angie or anything else for that matter? Well, Angie had her tonsils removed on April 19th of this year. Nine days later, she woke up with an Irish-sounding accent that she did not recognize. That's right. She now speaks with a strong Irish accent. And as hard as she tries, she cannot get rid of it. According to Yahoo News, the 28-year-old woman has been diagnosed with foreign accent syndrome. I, I'm serious as a heart attack. A rare medical condition that may be triggered by neurological or psychological damage. And according to speech pathologist Kerry Ballard, foreign accent syndrome is a legit disorder. It's described as a person's speech changing so that it sounds as though they're speaking in a different accent to their habitual accent. Medical doctors say it is unclear whether Angie Yen will still be able to get her Australian accent back. Can you imagine? What, what would you do if you suddenly woke up and started speaking in a different accent and you had no control over it? <laughs> you know what Angie Yen says the hardest part of this condition is? You know what she says the hardest part is? It has been the constant ridicule of friends and acquaintances claiming that she's faking the whole thing. When asked why speech therapy hasn't been working, Angie Yen replied with this. She said, I've tried very, very hard, but it's like a rubber band. The best way I can explain it is the harder you pull the rubber band away, the harder you pull back to Irish. Poor woman's in distress. And no one believes her. Let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in distress, say like Angie Yen, because someone won't believe you? Or, <laughs> or have you ever found yourself in distress because you were making something up. That is, you were lying. That's a more probable scenario, isn't it? 
you're in distress because of some lie that you've been speaking? Well, if you've ever known that, that feeling of distress due to your own fibbing or twisting of the truth or lying, then know that you're not alone. In fact, if you've known that feeling, then you're going to be acquainted with something of what David is experiencing in our passage this morning. Today, we're going to jump back into our study of 1 Samuel. And the last time we were together in this book, uh, we spent two weeks looking closely at Saul's encounter with the witch at Endor in 1 Samuel 28. And that tragic episode in Saul's life, it was a warning for the church today, wasn't it? And do you happen to recall what that warning was, the, the main lesson we learned from that final night of Saul's life as he interacted with the witch at Wendor? You remember what it was? It was simply this. It was a warning, and that is to us, do not harden your heart to God's word. The way Saul's life ends and it ends on a sad, tragic note, is a warning. A warning we see clearly taught in Hebrews 3, yet illustrated powerfully in the life of Saul, and that is, friend, do not harden your heart to God's word. Well, in 1 Samuel 29, the author of Samuel directs our attention off of Saul and back to David. Because if you remember, when we last left David, he was in quite a dilemma. You see, back in 1 Samuel 27, David did something rather odd. After sparing Saul's life yet again in 1 Samuel 26, and then, in an incredible way, Saul owning the fact that he was wrong towards David, and then Saul blessing David, after all that at the end of 1 Samuel 26... In 1 Samuel 27, we find David doing something that is ill-advised. Namely, he's talking to himself. And the counsels he's giving himself is not good. He tells himself that it would be best for him and his men to go back and stay with the Philistines and King Achish, the king of Gath. You remember this? And when David returns to Gath, Achish gives David and his men an entire town, the entire town of Ziklag. And the text tells us that David stayed there for 16 months. And here's the interesting thing. During those 16 months, David and his men made continual raids against the enemies of Israel. And they killed everyone, men, women, and children. And while they were making these raids against the enemies of Israel, David was deceiving and lying to the king of Achish, telling him that what he was actually doing was fighting the enemies of the Philistines. In fact, David's deception and lying was so convincing that at the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28... Achish asks David to join him in going to war against Israel. Indeed, not only that, 
Achish is so impressed by David that he makes David his bodyguard for life. So you see what's happening here. And the reader, the reader as we're reading our Bibles carefully, we're wondering, okay, how in the world is David going to get out of this? He's lied himself into a situation that seems impossible to get out. Does David admit the truth, blow his cover, and then possibly be killed by King Achish? Or does David continue on with the lie? That he's done with Israel, he's met alliances now with the Philistines, and he's going to go and fight God's people Israel and Saul. What's going to happen to David? Well, we find out in 1 Samuel 29. So if you haven't already, please turn, me that, turn with me there to 1 Samuel 29. That's page 251 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. As you're about to see, this chapter is only 11 verses long, yet this short chapter, it not only resolves what appears to be an impossible situation, but this is what we're going to lean into heavily this morning, but it also does this, and that is this text, I want to argue, it illustrates a central truth to the Christian gospel, a truth that distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religion in worldly wisdom and philosophy of our day. There is a gospel truth here that we ought not miss and that I'm going to want to press on our hearts as we work our way through this text. So open up your copy to God's word to 1 Samuel 29 and follow along with me as I begin. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. But before we, we jump in, just a, a quick note. Chapters 28 and 29 of 1 Samuel are not written chronologically. Okay? The episode we're about to read takes place or picks up from the very first two, chapter, two verses of chapter 28. So the story of David continues on, but this has happened before chapter 28. And we know this is the case because of the geography that we read in the first verse of 29 of where the Philistines are located at. So, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Achish is saying, he's my boy. He's deserted the Israelites. He's on team Philistine, yea, us. Okay, well, notice how the Philistines respond. Verse 4, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. That is Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back. 
that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? They're saying, look, we're going to go into battle, and he's going to turn on us and start fighting with the Israelites. In fact, they said, how could he deceive his Lord? They're saying, there's no way David's going to fight against his Lord, who's Saul. And you know what? They're right. And how do we know they're right? Because what has been the pattern we've seen in David thus far? Every time David has an opportunity to kill Saul, what does he do? He refrains. And they are keenly aware of David's loyalty. So they know if we go in there, he's, he's going to fight against us. They go on. Would it not be the heads of the men here? I love verse 5. It says, Is not this David of whom they sing one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So the commanders of the Philistines are like in no go, man. Achish, this isn't happening. And as you can imagine, Achish is disappointed. He says in verse 6, then Achish called David and said to him, he gets, a, gets him together in a meeting. He's like, look, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. <laughs> I, I, one just side note. You can't help but feel bad for Achish here. This, this poor guy has been gullible and bought David's deception, hook, line, and sinker. And we're going to see. Actually, Achish takes up 50% of all the ink spilled in this chapter. And most of it is him defending David because he's believed the lie. He says, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. <laughs> and to me, it seems right that you should march out in and with me and in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now. And go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. <laughs> Do you see how God in his abundant mercy has been working behind the scenes to resolve the situation for David? This is incredible. David's saying, look, we want to go to war, but we don't think you're on our team. So, you know, you just go back up to your life. No consequences. No, no one has to be the wiser that he's been, been lying. As one commentator put it, David, receive the Philistines as your personal savior and go back home, right? But notice David's response. In verse 8, you'd think he would say, thank you and be on your way. But I think we see something of the sin in David's heart because in David said Achish, but what have I done? He's wanting to justify himself. What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord and King? He's referring to Achish. Now, look, a lot of ink has been spilled as to what David's motive is here. You guys be good Bereans and, and uh, figure it out yourselves. <laughs> I don't know if he's trying to continue on with the lie so that he covers his, his bases or if he genuinely... Um, is in service to Achish. But either way, God has provided this opportunity for him. And even in his, his stubbornness, 
it still goes through because in verse 9, and Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his whole men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Notice the, the contrast between how chapter 28 ends with Saul and 29 ends with David. Saul departs in chapter 28 at what time of day? In the night and darkness. So in 29, David and departs in the day and light. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, several months ago, the Washington Post, they published a review of Amazon's new health tracking bracelet, the Amazon Halo. Perhaps some of you wear a similar type of device like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, right? Well, listen to the opening sentence of this review of Amazon's health tracking bracelet, the Amazon Halo. The review begins with this sentence. Amazon has a new health tracking bracelet with a microphone and an app that tells you everything that's wrong with you. According to the review, this health bracelet not only tells you if you have not exercised or slept enough, but it will also tell you if you are condescending, opinionated, or fat. That's right. The halo will call you out if your tone of voice is overbearing or irritated. The authors of the review go on and they say this. We hope our tone is clear here. We don't need this kind of criticism from a computer. The halo collects the most intimate information we've seen from a consumer health gadget and makes the absolute least use of it. Now, whether the Amazon Halo is correct in its assessment or not, I think this review reveals something that is true about each and every one of us. You know what that is? We don't like being told we have a problem, do we? Or that we're opinionated or irritated or that we're fat, right? <laughs> Indeed, we don't like being told that there's something within us or about us that is not right. However, the reality is there is. And our text this morning perfectly illustrates this truth. Faith, consider for a moment, let's just take a step back and consider for a moment what we've learned about David thus far. Up until this point, who has David needed to be delivered from? He first needed to be delivered from the Philistines. Then he needed to be delivered from Saul. 
And now here in 1 Samuel 29, you know what we learn? We learn that David also needs to be delivered from himself. And you know what? He's not alone. And faith, here's the gospel truth that I believe this passage presses upon our hearts, and that's this. You need deliverance from yourself, not through yourself. Every one of us has this need. All of us. If you can hear my voice, myself included, each and every one of us, you need deliverance from you, not through you. Faith better than any Fitbit or halo bracelet. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know what that means? It means that scripture is the only resource on God's green earth that can accurately tell us what our greatest need is. And what I believe this text so powerfully illustrates in the life of David is that one of our greatest needs is for us to be delivered from us. Rather than us thinking that we are the means of deliverance. And I cannot overstate how this biblical truth runs in stark contrast to the prevailing wisdom of our day. I mean, what is the message that is literally in every children's movie, TV program, blog, internet post, women's magazine, men's magazine? What's the message that is ubiquitous and in everything? Is it not this, that the solution you need for all the problems you face is you? You're the solution Think of how often we hear these phrases or these types of phrases in what we watch and read. Deliverance comes when you find your true self. You are the hero of your story. Look within for the solutions to your problems. Believe in yourself. This is everywhere. Yet, friend, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Because of indwelling sin, we ought not believe in ourselves. Indeed, our greatest need is not to believe in ourselves, but deliverance from ourselves. And I want to argue that this episode in David's life, David, who killed Goliath, who in many ways is a hero's hero. He needed deliverance from himself. And so do we. I mean, David thought, Faith, please hear me, David thought he was so clever. David, you could say, followed the wisdom of today. Before David went to stay with the Philistines, did David consult the Lord? Did David consult the priest Abiathar or the Urim? No. Instead, what did David do? We're going to look at this a little bit here. David instead relied on his own wisdom. In fact, you know what David did? He believed in himself. He trusted his own cleverness. And you know what? It worked for 16 months. 
until it put him in this terrible mess. And God in his kindness, as we're going to look at, behind the scenes, delivered him. David needed deliverance from himself. And so do we. And I'm just going to say, this is not only true, friend, when it comes to salvation, but also when it comes to the Christian's ongoing work of sanctification. Please hear me. When God saves a person, they are delivered immediately from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Furthermore, you're free from sin's penalty. In Christ, there is now no what? Condemnation. We are free from the power and the penalty of sin, but until we are with the Lord in glory, every day we will need to do battle with the presence of of indwelling sin. You need deliverance from yourself, not through yourself. And what I wanted to do this morning is to show you from this passage two reasons why this is true. And the first is this. It's because you can easily deceive yourself. Go ahead and flip back a couple of chapters to chapter 27. And I'd like us to look at two verses that help bring this truth to life. It's, as we read what happens in, 20, in chapter 27, it gives greater clarity and understanding of what's going on in chapter 29. So I'm going to read just two verses from chapter 27. And if you want to have your eyes follow up in chapter 26, verse 25. So this is, this is David and Saul's last encounter David just spared Saul his life yet again. Saul, in a moment of clarity, realizes he has been sinning and in the wrong against David. He actually blesses David. And he says this, verse 25 of chapter 26, Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. He's blessing him. So David went away and Saul returned to his place. Now here, verse 1, notice what we read in chapter 27. Then David consulted the Lord to decide what to do next. Is that what it says? Then David said in his heart. He's talking to himself. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Is there nothing better for you to do, David? Really? But he's having this internal dialogue where he's counseling himself. And he's not seeking the counsel of the Lord. And so notice, I should escape to the land of the Philistines, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now flip over to verse 11. So he goes to King Achish. Achish gives him the, the town of Ziklag. David makes these raids for 16 months. And notice what we read about David. Verse 11, And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. He wants to cover his tracks. That's why he's slaughtering everybody. News to Gath, thinking, 
lest they should tell about us and say, David has, has, so David has done. And then this is an important phrase. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Such was his custom. Uh, the title for my sermon has been taken from a well-known poem by the Scottish poet Sir Walter Scott. Did you happen to recognize it? Anyone? I hope so. Please. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay. Good. Yes, thank you. The title is the first part of the poem. Let's see if you guys know the rest of it. Okay? So I'm going to say the first part, and then you fill in the blank when I stop. See if you know the whole poem. It goes like this. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we... A few of you know it. Very good, yeah. When we first practice to deceive. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And this accurately summarizes what we read about David in this text. Notice again what we learn about David in verse 11. The text says, such was David's custom while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And what was that custom? You know what it was? Lying. Deception. This was his custom, not for a week, not for a month, not for two months, but for 16 months. And I have no doubt as his conscience was being seared during this time with each and every lie, he thought, you know what? One more time won't be so bad. I'll get away with it. You know, just, I'll just let it go. I'll get away with it till the end. Now, what we learn here in chapter 29, as Sir Walter Scott would say, is David's tangled web. And friend, David has no one to blame but who? Himself. Yet here's the most important point that I want you to understand, Faith. What you have to understand is that David's deception of Achish first began with him deceiving himself. As verse 1 states, David began talking to himself. And what he was saying to himself was nonsense. As I mentioned earlier, in 1 Samuel 27, David is not consulting the Lord. He's not inquiring of God as to what he should do next. No, what David is doing, and friend, please hear me, this can be dangerous. David is listening to himself. He's trusting in himself. He's listening to his counsel, and the counsel he's giving himself is terrible. But how would he know? Because he isn't inquiring of the Lord. So this is what I want you to see. This unprovoked dilemma is revealing that David's greatest problem is David. Think about that. David had been delivered from lions, bears, the Philistines, and Saul. Now here in 1 Samuel 29, he actually needs to be delivered from himself. And faith, if we're honest, we're in the same boat too. Alistair Begg has been the pastor at Parkside Church in Ohio for over 37 years. 37 years. I praise the Lord for that, because that's not common, to have a man faithfully serve in one church for almost four decades. And recently, Beg was asked this question. He said, Alistair, 
Who's the person that has given you the most trouble in your 37 years at Parkside Church? And you know what he said? He immediately responded, me. Who's the person that has given you the most trouble? He said, without even blinking, me. I'm the person who's given me the most trouble in my 37 years of pastoring this church. And friend, please hear me. This was not a false humility or modesty. No, Beg was giving an honest, biblically informed answer. I mean, Christian, what does the Apostle John say in 1 John 1, 8? He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Till we are with the Lord in glory, we will need to fight and do battle against indwelling sin. And if we're simply talking to ourselves, rather than having God's word speak to us through his word, that's going to lead us to do foolish things like David. You with me? So what's the application here? A couple things. In light of this truth, one of the applications is, friend, put on humility. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Doubt your cleverness. And instead, seek the wisdom of the Lord. And if I could drill down here just for a moment, and perhaps meddle, can I ask, is there a decision or a series of decisions that you have been making that you think are really clever that you have not sought the Lord's guidance on? I think this word would encourage you to reconsider your, your decision and to consider and to go to the Lord in his word for wisdom and counsel. But then second, I just want to point out that you need deliverance from yourself because God alone can deliver you. Look again at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 29. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest to me. and It seems right that you should march out in and with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. God alone can deliver you. I recently read a children's story in which a Christian woman who was alone and without any food, she was telling her plights to the Lord. She was praying out loud to her heavenly father that she had no food and that she needed some. Well, somehow her next-door neighbor, an agnostic or an atheist, he overheard the woman praying out loud, and he decided it was time to play a trick on her. So you know what he did? He went and purchased two loaves of bread and left them at her door. And as you can imagine, when the woman returned upon seeing the bread, she burst out into a devout prayer of praise, thanking God, God had answered her prayer to give her her daily bread. Well, immediately the neighbor got out of his house. They, they shared an apartment wall there, got out of the house, and accosted the woman to explain to her what had really happened. He said, no, I want to let you know that I overheard you praying. I bought the bread. 
and I placed it here on your step. And his point was that it was not God who answered her prayer. You know what the lady said in response? She said, oh, oh, yes, it was the Lord who answered my prayer. He even used the devil to do it. Well, notice we see the same thing happening in the passage I just read, don't we? Notice, due to David's sin, he finds himself in a situation that is truly hopeless. Honestly, there's no way out. Yet, what do we see happen? What we see happen is that behind the scenes, God is working and intervening to deliver him. And tell me, class, by what means does God use to save David? Who? The Philistines. And this is not the first time that the Lord has used such enemies as saviors, is it? Think back to chapter 23. You remember that scene? This is the scene where Saul and his men are approaching David. They're they're going around the mountain, and they're just about ready to pounce on David and to kill him and his men. It is really probably the darkest scene in David's life where it looks like he's actually going to die. How does God deliver David from Saul in that situation? A messenger is sent to Saul saying, Oh, Saul, the Philistines are making a raid on us. We got to go. And because the Philistines were attacking Saul and his men somewhere else, Saul had to leave his pursuit of David and go take care of that. The Philistines, once again, unwittingly, were used by the Lord as a means of deliverance. As one commentator pointed out, the Philistines make such unwitting but effective servants, don't they? So notice what this text is clearly teaching us, Faith. What this text teaches and what we Christians ought to rejoice in is that even in our folly and our stupidity, we are still no match for our God who has thousands of unguessable ways in which he rescues his people even by the mouth of the Philistines. Friend, consider God is so great, he is so powerful, that he can make the enemy serve us as a friend. God not only prepares for us a table in the presence of our enemies, but he also has the knack of making the enemies set the table. In faith, we see this supremely demonstrated, do we not, through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross? Right In this chapter, as I've been arguing, David has gotten himself in such a mess that only God can deliver him. And faith, that's exactly what we have done due to our sin. Yet consider where this story is at and where it's moving in the biblical storyline. Despite how well David started, it is clear that he is not the promised one spoken of in Genesis 3, is he? No, but just a few chapters later in 2 Samuel 7, we read that God makes a covenant with David, doesn't he? And in that text, we learn that from David's line, there will come the true king, the promised deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, whereas David need to be delivered from himself, Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless one, did not need to be delivered from himself, but instead... He delivered up himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Amen? And why did Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless one, 
have to go to a cross and die? Because, friend, ultimately our greatest problem isn't our failures. Our greatest problem is that our sin has offended and is against a holy and righteous God. And whereas worldly wisdom says the solution to your problem is in you, be damned that thought. Scripture says the exact opposite. Please hear me. It's not the solution that is found within us. It's the problem. Sin that we all have. And as this text so powerfully illustrates, we need to be delivered from ourselves. And friend, such deliverance comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Friend, have you put your trust in him or are you believing in yourself? Are you trusting in the cleverness of your own righteousness? Friend, don't. Salvation comes to those who own and acknowledge the fact that they are incapable of saving themselves, that their sin has separated them from God and that they deserve just condemnation from a perfect holy God. Salvation comes to those who own that and then look at the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life they failed to live, then died the death they were owed for their sin and then who rose from the dead three days later. Salvation comes to those who aren't clever in their righteousness but who trust the righteousness of another Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you, friend, if you have not put your faith in Christ, let today be the day of salvation for you. If that heart of yours is beating away and you'd like to learn more about that, I'd love to talk with you more after the service. And to the Christian here, Christian, let us clothe ourselves in humility. Let us not be wise in our own eyes. But let us in humility seek the Lord in each and every decision. Amen? Let's pray.